Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. My talk is on, as Maylene said, it's on natural rights. And I will be um, presenting natural rights from a Thomistic perspective. Uh, so I'll just uh, get into my paper here. I was, um, I made a, a bunch of last minute edits that I didn't, unfortunately, wasn't able to put into a, a Word document in print. So they're all written in here in pencil. So if I, if I stumble a little bit, you'll know, you'll know why. As many people understand it, a right as an attribute of a person is the license to do, to demand, or to possess something. For many of us, the political regimes in which we live confer upon us rights thus understood. Amendments to our American Constitution, for example, grant us the right to vote, which is a right to do something, the right to trial by jury, which is a right to demand something, and the right to bear arms, which is a right to possess something. Philosophers and jurists call rights of the sort granted to us by the U.S. Constitution positive rights. A positive right is a right that is conferred upon me by other human beings. Many people claim, and I am one of them, that besides positive rights, there are also such things as natural rights. These are rights that are implied in some way by our human nature. For this reason, they can also be called human rights. Proponents of natural rights, and here again I include myself, hold that positive rights should be based on natural rights. So whatever, consti whatever constitutional rights I have, for example, should be such that they can be traced back to natural rights. <coughs> Notice that I do not say that they must correspond directly to natural rights. This is an important point. I'm not saying, for instance, that if I have a constitutional right to vote, it is because I have a natural right to vote. For a constitutional right to vote to be based on a natural right, it must only be the case that some natural right that I have could imply a right to vote uh, in, given, in a given circumstance. How natural rights translate into positive rights will in many cases depend on particular historical contexts. Assuming this, we can expect that the relationship between natural rights and positive rights will shift to some extent over time and across political regimes. My primary focus in this paper will be on natural rights rather than on positive rights. What I propose to do is offer you an account of the nature and existence of natural rights. In doing this, I will be guided by the doctrine of natural rights developed in the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition. 
Although you will not find an expressly developed doctrine of natural rights in Aristotle's or in St. Thomas Aquinas' text, you will find principles in them from which such a doctrine can, can be and has been developed by their followers in the past few centuries. A doctrine of natural rights can be derived from St. Thomas's doctrine of natural law, which, is, which has its basis in his concepts of human nature and the human good, concepts which are largely Aristotelian. So to offer you an account of the nature and existence of natural rights, I will first need to talk about human nature and the human good, and then about natural law. Those will be the first two parts of my paper. In the third part, I will show you how natural rights can be derived from natural law. From natural law. Then in the fourth and final part, I will consider some objections to natural rights. Part one, human nature and the human good. We use the term good in various ways. Here by good, I will mean what is fulfilling. This corresponds to one of the common ways that we use the term. I take something to be good because I find it fulfilling. In other words, it satisfies a desire that I have. We could also say then that the good is what is desirable or what we want or pursue. This is also how St. Thomas understands the good. The notion of goodness, he tells us, consists in this, that it is in some way desirable. That is a quote from the Summa Theologiae. He notes that this is likewise how Aristotle understands the good and quotes the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle says that the good is what all things desire. Now you may suspect that there is something wrong here. Are St. Thomas and Aristotle um, and I all saying that everybody everywhere wants what is good? And if that is what we are saying, aren't we terribly wrong? After all, don't some people, even many people, want things that are bad? Some people want to defraud other people, or kill innocent people, or break promises. It does not seem to be a given, then, that everybody wants what is good. Or so you might object. That is a perfectly reasonable objection. And responding to it allows me to make an important qualification. When I say, along with St. Thomas and Aristotle, that the good is what we desire, what I am saying, and what they are saying too, is that we desire what appears to be good to us. That is, we desire, we desire it because it appears fulfilling for us. As St. Thomas puts it, Whatever we desire, we desire sub ratione, sub ratione boni, which means under the aspect of good. If it were truly good, then it would not only be apparent, then it would not only apparently fulfill us, but truly fulfill us. So some things could appear to be good for us, even though they aren't truly good for us, while other things not only appear to be good for us, but also truly, but can also truly be good for us. Suppose for a moment that you were truly and completely fulfilled um, such that there was nothing more that you desired. This would be a state of perfection. I say this because we consider something perfect if it lacks nothing that it should have. 
Because knives are meant for cutting, a perfect knife is one not lacking in sharpness. Because triangles are supposed to have three sides, a perfect triangle wouldn't lack any of its sides. If we were to have all the goods we should have, true goods, then we would be perfect. But this is also what we understand by happiness. It is a state of complete fulfillment or perfection. From these considerations, we can say that any true good perfects us, if not absolutely, then at least to some extent, and that it therefore contributes to our happiness. Aristotle and St. Thomas agree that goods, as what we desire, have the character of goals or ends. Thus, they often use the term good and end interchangeably. Good and end, says St. Thomas, have the same ratio, that is the same character, since the good is that which all desire. The more technical term that Aristotle and St. Thomas use for end, or an end, is final cause. So they regard final causes, too, as having the character of goods. But let's return to the question of apparent goods and true goods. How do we determine whether something is truly good for us? What, um, what can we look to to figure this out? One necessary, even if not sufficient, criterion is our own nature, human nature. It already points us in a certain direction. It already aims us, so to speak, at certain goods, things that are fulfilling for us. As living beings, things like adequate food, shelter, and so on are good for us. As dependent beings, in many respects, stable functional communities, namely families and political communities, are good for us. As intelligent beings, truth is good for us. Concretely, that would mean that education is good for us. Because our nature directs us to all these goods, we will call them natural goods. But this is not yet a complete list of natural goods. No good that isn't itself absolutely perfect will ever totally satisfy us. Our best friend may be an exceptional person in many ways, but may also have certain downsides. Habitual lateness, forgetfulness, personal hygiene issues, etc. Because of these effects in our friend, our friendship will be somewhat fulfilling, but not completely fulfilling. But from a good course in metaphysics, we would learn that no finite being could ever, all on its own, be absolutely perfect in the sense that it stood in need of nothing that it didn't already possess. Whatever is absolutely perfect would depend upon so would, um, whatever is absolutely perfect would depend on nothing outside itself. But every finite being depends for its existence on a system of other beings. This tells us that the only absolutely perfect being must not be finite, but infinite. But an absolutely perfect and infinite being is what we mean by God. If no finite being can ever totally satisfy us, and only an absolutely perfect and infinite being can, then only God can totally satisfy us. But otherwise, only in God can we find complete happiness. He is our ultimate end. 
If this is true, then we would have to add God to our list of natural goods. In fact, we would have to put him at the top of the list. From a good course in metaphysics, we would learn not only that God is our supreme natural good, but that we owe our very existence and nature to God, and that he is the intelligent, free, omniscient, omnipotent, and provident principle of the universe. If God is our supreme natural good, and these other things are also true of him, then he should be the object of worship and the addressee of prayer. In short, we should cultivate religion. If God is the free creator of our existence and nature, then the goods toward which our nature directs us are goods that God himself wills us to pursue. In pursuing them, we are following the divine will, and in rejecting them for other goods, we are going against it. Evidently, no atheist would accept these several theses about God and our relationship to him, and I would not expect them to, certainly not without an argument. Although justifying arguments can be provided, this is not the occasion to provide them. But it is important to note that St. Thomas would claim that we can know the truth of these theses by reason, and that they are not, in principle, a matter of faith. Even if they can be supernaturally revealed and accepted on faith, here, however, I can only present them as stipulations. If God is our supreme natural good or ultimate natural end, as I have said, then there is a hierarchy among our natural goods. That is, some will be of greater value than others. After God, we could put the cultivation of knowledge and then the formation of and maintenance of stable fun, uh, functional communities. And finally, self-preservation. If there is such a hierarchy of natural goods, it doesn't necessarily entail that we would forsake the lower natural goods and focus only on pursuing the higher ones. If we totally neglect the lower natural goods, it will become difficult to pursue the higher ones. Poor physical health, for example, will make it hard for me to be an active participant in the communities to which I belong. If the communities to which I belong are not stable or functional, then that will make it hard for me to pursue knowledge or a relationship with God. So we should not simply neglect the lower natural goods uh, for the sake of the higher ones, but order our pursuit of them to our pursuit of the higher ones. In other words, we should pursue them for the sake of the higher ones. The natural goods that I have been discussing may truly fulfill us, but can't I choose to pursue things that are at odds with what naturally fulfills me? Can't I choose to pursue things that are bad for me according to my nature? Yes, I do have the power to make that choice. I have the power to go against nature's direction. And yet, I can't completely escape nature because I can't want anything that I, that I don't take to be fulfilling in some way, and therefore, good. Again, as St. Thomas says, whatever we desire, we desire under the aspect of good. I am confronted thus with two things that claim to be good, but are in conflict. Suppose that on the one hand, we have the natural good of a stable functional family. 
And on the other hand, we have the alleged good of adultery. Which good should I choose? The only answer can be that I should choose the true good. Analogously, if we are asked to choose between 4 and 5 as a sum of 2 plus 2, we should choose the true sum, 4. 5 would be the wrong answer. But how do I know what the true good is when there is a conflict between what I, what I happen to want and what is naturally good for me? I said that the natural good is the true good. But is that always the case? Can there be exceptions? The solution becomes clear once we understand the relationship between ourselves and our nature. There is a sense in which each of us is more than our nature and therefore not reducible to it. I have characteristics that are mine not because I am a human being, but because I am this particular human being. My height, my weight, my job, my citizenship, certain choices, certain memories, and so on. But take away my humanity, by which I mean my body and my vegetative and uh, appetitive and cognitive powers, and there, is not, and there is nothing left over that has this height or weight or job or citizenship or choices or memories. Without a body, I couldn't have height or weight. Without a body plus my vegetative, appetitive, and cognitive powers, I couldn't have a job or be a citizen. Without my appetitive and cognitive powers, I couldn't have made choices or have memories. I have no self, then, that exists independently of my nature. To be sure, I am unique in a certain manner, but my uniqueness is not and cannot amount to a self that exists apart from my nature. A self that exists apart from my nature is a fiction. But if this is so, then I can't have any true goods that conflict with my natural goods. There's nothing that could, that's good for me, but not good for my nature. My only true goods will just be natural goods. Consequently, in any conflict between natural goods and other perceived goods, I should always choose natural goods. This is not to say that, <clears throat> excuse me, the particular natural good that I should choose will always be obvious. What we should choose will also in part depend on our own individual characteristics and on the specific context in which we live. You must take these into account too when we determine what is truly good for us. We should never choose what conflicts with a natural good, but the precise form that the natural good um, that we should choose will take will often, um, if not always, be impossible to determine a priori. Aristotle and St. Thomas would tell us that what we need to make a correct judgment about the true good in our concrete circumstances is the virtue that they call prudence. The prudent person knows not only what our natural goods are in general and how they are related to each other, but what they are in concrete circumstances. It is clear, for instance, that food is a natural good. But what kinds of food we should eat, how much food we should eat, and when we should eat it, aren't always clear. It will depend on the person involved and the context, which includes the kinds of foods uh, available in that time and place. Then, of course, there are more important questions that we face, questions about our families, our political communities, education, and religion. 
How should we discipline our children? How much should we spend on national defense? What subjects should we prioritize in school curricula? How often should we pray? The prudent person will be the person who will know the answers to these questions. Earlier I said that our nature is a necessary, <clears throat> excuse me, necessary but not sufficient criterion for determining what is truly good for us. Now we see that, that prudence is another necessary criterion. Even though it will often be impossible to know a priori what natural goods we should choose, Aristotle and St. Thomas would say that there are some things that could never count as um, natural goods because they are just mala in se, that is, uh, bad or evil in themselves. Murder, theft, and adultery would be such things. They are always in themselves bad for us as human beings. And so we should never choose them. But coming back to prudence, what if we ourselves lack it? What if I don't have prudence? How will we know how we should live? While we have, uh, may have a vague idea about what our natural goods are in general, we will not know, not with any certainty at any rate, what particular goods to pursue in given situations. This is where stable functional communities play a crucial role. Ideally, our parents are prudent and guide us as children and young adults and exemplify and teach and, and teach us prudence. Ideally, our political communities have prudent leaders who formulate appropriate policies and legislation. Religion, religion too, should be mentioned here. Church teaching, scripture, and the saints exemplify and are sources of prudence. But along with the guidance of prudence, we need to develop virtues that give us the wherewithal to do what prudence commands. We need, above all, courage, moderation, and justice. These virtues, too, these virtues too, we ideally learn from our parents, who exemplify and teach them, and from religion, and they are supported by good political policies and legislation. Without the essential communities of the family, the political community, and the church, we are lost. And if any of them is wanting, then it will make things all the more difficult for us to develop virtue and find happiness. Any country will be in crisis if there is a breakdown in the family, or in the political community, or in religion. And if there is a breakdown in all three, then we are bad off indeed. Part two, natural law. To explain natural rights, um, first of all, we have to understand something about our nature, what's naturally good for us, and then something about natural law, which I'm going to talk about right now. We are now in a position to talk about natural law. St. Thomas tells us that a law is a rule of reason meant to guide our conduct. This understanding of law seems entirely uncontroversial. The laws that we create, we create upon reflection, that is, by thinking about them, and they are intended to guide our conduct. Constitutional law, business law, criminal law, and so on are like this. But what does St. Thomas mean by natural law? Like any law, it is, part, um, it is in part something that we intelligent beings conceive by our reason. But this concept comes from our reflection upon our nature and the goods or ends to which it directs us. Reflecting on our nature, we see how we ought to live. 
So although we do, in a sense, formulate this law ourselves by our reason, it is a law that is, in an important respect, dictated to us by our nature. If this sounds strange to you, it shouldn't. Structurally speaking, there are all sorts of parallels. Consider, for instance, a sculptor, let's say Michelangelo. He has an understanding of how he should go about sculpting the Pietà from what he knows about the nature of marble and the nature of his tools. They dictate to him how he must proceed. Or consider the scientists that work with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. They have an understanding of how they should conduct their experiments from what they know about the nature of the particles that they deal with and the nature of the equipment they use. These things dictate to them how they must proceed. Could Michelangelo or the scientists at CERN get some things, get some things wrong? Yes, they could. But it will be because they have failed to understand something about the nature of what they are working with and what its implications are for what they should do. So what I have said about human nature and the human good already tells us a lot of what we need to know about St. Thomas's doctrine of natural law. Natural law is our reason, natural law is our reason guiding our conduct based on our understanding of our nature and the goods it directs us to. But if our nature, as I stipulated a moment ago, is freely created by God, then we can also say that natural law is from God. It has a divine origin and expresses the divine will. Divine providence, divine providence, which I also stipulated a moment ago, is just another way of talking about God's rule over the universe. St. Thomas calls this divine rule over the universe the eternal law. And he tells us that natural law is the rational creature's participation in eternal law. Any law as a, as a rule that guides our conduct has, in one way or another, the purpose of laying an obligation on us. The obligation may be positive or negative. It will specify what we should do or what we should refrain from doing. Natural law is no different. As St. Thomas sees it, natural law commands us to pursue the several natural goods that we mentioned earlier. The successful pursuit of these goods requires also that we should refrain from doing certain things, namely things that would threaten our acquisition or accomplishment of natural goods. Thus, the precepts of natural law are both positive and negative. We shouldn't think of natural law as a kind of external imposition on us. Remember that it arises and has its force from our own nature, and that we ourselves are nothing apart from our nature. But assuming the divine origin of our nature, our natural obligations ultimately derive from God and his rule over the universe. In resisting them, we would be resisting God. As our creator, God is not alien to us either. No one is more responsible for who we are deep down than God. When St. Thomas says that God as creator is in omnibus rebus et intime, innermost in all things, this includes us. As our creator, God is innermost in us as well. And on the assumption that God has created us, he has not created us as a self independent of a nature. We are a self that is through and through the particular expression of a nature. 
What God wills, what God's will is for us, at least generally speaking, is already spelled out in our nature. St. Thomas does not give a detailed account of the hierarchy among the precepts of the natural law, but it is fairly clear that he assumes that there is a hierarchy, and many Thomists likewise suppose this to be the case. To say that there is a hierarchy among the precepts of, of the natural law is to say that some of my duties or obligations are more important than others. This hierarchy will correspond to the hierarchy among natural goods. My obligation to cultivate religion, say, will be more important than my obligation to preserve my life. But in parallel to what I observed in my discussion of the hierarchy among natural goods, it doesn't automatically follow that I should, therefore, never worry about preserving my life and only concern myself with cultivating religion. I should rather see my obligation to preserve my life. I should see, however, how my obligation to preserve my life connects with and is ordered to my obligation to cultivate religion. With respect to natural law, the points I made about prudence and the other virtues can be repeated with this, just a small adjustment to the terms. The prudent person will be the person who sees how natural law applies in concrete circumstances. Knowledge of natural law is indispensable, but without prudence, there is only so far that we can go. And without the virtues of courage, moderation, and justice, it will be hard for us to live as natural law and prudence oblige us to. It should come as no surprise to you that St. Thomas holds that the laws that we formulate to govern our political communities, what he calls human law and what we also call positive law, should be based on natural law, or at least be in harmony with it. The, the political community is, after all, a human community. And what will be good for it will be things that are good for us as human beings. Thus, through legislation, the political community should work, to con should work to create conditions favorable to the pursuit of natural goods. If the family and religion are as important as I have said that they are, then legislation should be favorable to them. But once again, it will be up to the prudent person to determine what that will mean in concrete circumstances. Educational institutions outside the family should assist parents in their obligations to form their children in virtue. Is this best done by public education or private education? It depends on the circumstances. Should religion be permitted to influence legislation? If God is our supreme natural good, then it would seem that religion should influence legislation. <coughs> but what, preci what a precise form that this influence should take um, will be uh, difficult to determine. It will depend on the circumstances, and the prudent person will be the person who can see how it should influence legislation. Okay, um, part three. Now we finally come to natural rights, which is what this talk is supposed to be about. Now, I could have just jumped right into natural rights without talking about human nature or the human good or natural law, but then my account of natural rights would not have made much sense and would have, been, uh, would have come across as rather arbitrary. So everything that I said up to this, to this point was meant to prepare us to understand, to understand what natural rights are and to see, to see on what basis we can assert their existence. If we think of natural law as a set of natural obligations that we have, which is indeed what natural law is, 
then the step from natural law to natural rights is pretty straightforward. Natural rights necessarily follow from natural law. Anyone who holds a natural law doctrine must concede this. The 19th century Dominican priest and Thomas, Tomaso Ziliara, who was an important and influential advisor to Pope Leo XIII, explains the relationship between natural law and natural rights this way. Insofar as we have the obligation from natural law to pursue certain goods, we have the right to pursue those goods. The right is necessitated by the obligation. This derivation of natural rights from obligations of natural law has become standard among modern Thomas proponents of natural law. The reasoning that supports it is not hard to explain. Let's think through it. Suppose I am in a position to give you orders. Suppose I tell you, do X. And as you proceed to carry out my order, I then tell you, you are not permitted to do X. Naturally, you will want to know whether I have changed my mind, since I am now telling you that you cannot do what I have ordered you to do. I tell you that I have not changed my mind, and I say, I order you to do X, but I will not permit you to do it. Clearly, it is unreasonable for me to order you to do X um, when I will not permit you to do it. If I am going to behave reasonably in giving you an order, I will also permit you to carry out the order. Permitting you to carry out the order is reasonably due to you, is your right in these circumstances. What is also reasonably due to you and is your right is anything you need to carry out the order, that is, any necessary means that you require to do X. But there's another related way we can think about this. St. Thomas says that the willing of an end is also the willing of the means to the end. And this makes perfect sense. If I truly want to do X or want you to do X, and that disposition is not a mere velleity in me, that is a kind of empty wish, then I will also will whatever it is that can bring X about. Reasonably willing for you to do X necessarily implies that I do not prevent you from doing it. And that means in willing you to do X, I owe it to you to permit you to do it. You have a right to do it. If this line of thought is correct, then if I'm obliged by natural law to pursue some good, it is naturally due to me. I have a natural right to be permitted to pursue that good. And so uh, I also have a right to whatever means I need to pursue it. So the point here is that natural rights derive from natural law. In, again, in the following way. Natural law obliges us to act in certain ways, right? To, to preserve our lives, to form uh, and maintain stable functional communities, such as families and political communities, to pursue knowledge, to uh, cultivate religion. If natural law obliges us to pursue these goods, then it also implies that we have a right to pursue them. We, we, we wouldn't have the, the if, if we're obliged to do it, then we have a right to, to do it, right? So in this way, we can see natural rights following or um, deriving from natural law. So if natural law, again, um, uh, obliges me to cultivate religion, 
if that's something that I am directed to by nature, ultimately by God, then I have a right to pursue religion. I've said that this derivation of natural rights is standard among modern Thomists. So who do I have in mind? I've already mentioned Tommaso Zigliata, but I could add a long um, list of others. Some of the people on the list are <coughs> the following. Pope Leo XIII, Reginald Garagou Lagrange, Jacques Maritain, Hans Meyer, Heinrich Roman, Henri Renard, Henry Beach, Anthony Liska, William Wallace, and more recently, David Oderberg and Edward Fazer. So we are talking about some pretty important figures in modern Thomism. Now, I cannot pass over in silence the fact that there are some modern Thomists who reject natural rights. The most conspicuous is Alistair McIntyre. But McIntyre does not present much of a problem for my argument, and this for two reasons. First, because even though he is a proponent of natural law, he never addresses the possibility of deriving natural rights from natural law. In fact, and quite unaccountably, he seems perfectly oblivious to this move in modern Thomism. Second, the concept of natural rights that is his target is not quite the same as the concept of natural rights that I propose here. I've criticized McIntyre's rejection of natural rights elsewhere. The center of my critique is the simple point that McIntyre's rejection of natural rights is inconsistent with his endorsement of natural law. I agree with McIntyre many things, but not on natural rights. If the natural law is from God, as I have argued, then the natural rights derived from it will also be from God. And as you might have already inferred, just as there is a hierarchy among natural goods, which generates a hierarchy among natural law precepts, there's also a hierarchy of natural rights. Moreover, just as um, what is lower in the hierarchies of natural goods and natural law precepts is ordered to what is higher, so the rights at the lower end of the hierarchy of natural rights are ordered to those at the higher end. Prudence will be essential in determining the precise claims that I can make about my natural rights and those of others, and the other virtues will help me to do what prudence commands about my rights and about others' rights. Granted that we have natural rights, can we say with any specificity what they are? I believe we can. I would suggest that among our natural rights are the following five. The right to preserve our lives the right to form and maintain stable functional communities, first of all, families and political communities, the right to pursue truth, the right to cultivate religion, and the right to cultivate the virtues we need to fulfill our obligations according to natural law. Now let me stress that this is not a complete list. I do not think, however, that it states, I do not think, however, that it states our I'm sorry, I do think, however, that it states our most essential rights, or most essential natural rights. You may notice that I do not mention freedom anywhere on this list. It seems to me that there is no need to mention it because it is clearly implied by any right. If I have a right to do, demand, or possess something, that necessarily implies that I have the freedom to do, demand, or possess it. Following Jacques Maritain, I would Believe, I believe that there is a distinction to be made between the possession of a right and the exercise of a right. 
This distinction seems undeniable. Consider the following. Although I have a natural right to form and maintain a stable functional family, I am not, at the moment, exercising that right. I'm giving a talk. And suppose that I never find the right woman to marry. In fact, I have, but we'll just see. <laughs> Hypothetically. Hopefully my wife is not listening. She can't be, she's in Florida. Um, suppose that I never find the right woman to marry. In that event, it would be imprudent for me to marry, since the chances of maintaining a family with, uh, would be endangered by the fact that I might never have a strong bond with my prospective wife. In fact, my relevant natural right doesn't even come into play because it is a right to form and maintain um, a stable functional family. And the conditions for me having a family of that sort, according to this scenario, don't seem to have obtained because I couldn't find uh, uh, the, the right woman. On this scenario, then, I could, go, I could go through my whole life without ever exercising my natural right to form and maintain a stable functional family. So what I'm trying to point out here is that the possession of a right is distinct from the exercise of a right. Just the fact that I have, have a right doesn't mean that I can necessarily exercise it. This is a very important point. Um, now, some people might wonder, uh, could something count as a right if its exercise is subject to certain conditions? If you recall, at the beginning of this paper, I defined a right as a license to do, to, to demand, or to possess something. This is a standard way that uh, philosophers and jurists define a right, and it matches up with how we generally use the term. But notice that it is not part of this definition that the exercise of a right cannot be subject to any conditions. In other words, this definition of a right is perfectly compatible with the view that there are conditions on the exercise of a right. So again, just having a right doesn't mean that I can automatically exercise it. There have to, the right conditions have to be there. Supposing that the exercise of, of natural rights is subject to certain conditions, can the natural rights themselves ever be taken away from us? Can our natural rights ever be taken away from us? It seems to me that the answer to this question must be no. We have natural rights by virtue of being human beings. You could no more take away our natural rights than you could take, than you could make it the case that nine isn't divisible by three. It belongs to the, to the nature of nine that is divisible by three, just as it belongs to the, our nature that we have natural rights. So I believe that we can say uh, in this respect that our natural rights are inalienable. But obviously, saying this is not at all to say that we must respect every claim that something is a natural right. Do I have a natural right to say whatever I wish? I do not. It is harmful to the natural good of stable functional communities to defame people, for example. And what I have said about the conditions on the exercise of our natural rights also suggests that we can, in many cases, dispute what counts as the legitimate exercise of an authentic natural right. In the name of my natural right to preserve my life, can I take from others what they need to preserve their lives? 
It depends on the context. Furthermore, because there is a hierarchical order to our natural rights based on the hierarchy of natural goods and natural law precepts, it can happen that I will have to forego the exercise of some natural right. <clears throat> For instance, I may have to give up my life. Um, this may be required by the good of the political community or the good of religion. As I'm sure you're aware, not everyone agree, argues, I'm sorry, as I'm sure you're aware, not everyone who argues for natural rights does so in the way that I have done or that modern Thomists did, which is, um, I, I'm basically presenting the, the Thomistic approach to, to natural rights. Some people, for instance, argue for natural rights from human dignity. Unfortunately, I do not have time here to consider the, the legitimacy of these other approaches. I'm certain, um, I'm certainly open to these other approaches. Um, uh, that is, so long as they don't conflict with the, the way that, that I'm understanding natural rights, that is derived from natural law. Okay, so um, this, is, this is the final part of the paper. I'm going to consider some objections to natural rights. Uh, the first two come from an English philosopher named Jeremy Bentham. He lived between the 18th and 19th centuries. He's famous as the founder of modern utilitarianism. Um, his consideration of natural rights focuses on the declaration of, right, of the rights of man and the citizens, and the citizen, a statement that, about natural rights adopted by the French National Assembly in the wake of the Revolution of 1789. According to the Declaration, the end of all political associations is the preservation of natural and imprescriptible rights of man. Imprescriptible just means inalienable. These rights, we are told, are liberty, property, security, and resistance of oppression. But Bentham will have none of it. As he sees things, natural rights simply do not exist. The only kind of rights there are, says Bentham, are positive rights, or as he calls them, legal rights. And these are conferred on us by governments. But this objection of Bentham to natural rights has no force, since he merely asserts it um, and gives no supporting reasons. And it is therefore question begging. To beg the question in, in logic is to assume or to assert what you need to prove, right? And that's what um, Bentham does when he says that natural rights don't exist. He just says it. He doesn't say, give us any reasons to think that he's right about it. Um, so we can set that objection aside. But he has a second objection. Um, he's, and this one touches on what he sees as a contradiction between the claim um, that natural rights are inalienable and the claim that there are limits to their exercise. And he sees this in the, the Declaration, in the French Declaration. Now, I have no wish to defend the, the, this, uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the, citizens, and the Citizen. Um, but if Bentham is making a general statement about the relationship between the inalienability of natural rights and their exercise, then I believe that he is wrong. So to say that rights are inalienable, and yet that there are conditions on them, uh, is not a contradiction. On my understanding of natural rights, as I argued a moment ago, rights can be both inalienable and their exercise conditional. 
This is partly because the possession of a right is not the same thing as its exercise. Limits on the exercise of a right would not, therefore, necessarily imply anything about their possession. I may have a, a right to something as a human being, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can exercise that right in this context. And as I pointed out a moment ago, there's an obvious distinction between having a right and its exercise. If there weren't, then just by having rights, we'd be exercising them all the time, but obviously we're not. So there's a, a clear distinction between the, the possession of a right and the exercise of a right. And so if the exercise is limited, that doesn't imply anything about whether um, we possess the right or not. So I think that this claim of Bentham, that there's a contradiction here, um, is, is mistaken. All right, then the, the, one more objection, and then um, we'll be done. This one comes from uh, Nigel Bigger. Bigger is uh, currently the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. In 2020, he published a book entitled, What's Wrong with Rights? Um, it's a question mark. It's a question. What's wrong with rights? But he does go through the book and, and um, offer a critique of natural rights theories. Uh, Bigger contains that the language of natural rights is confused and misleading because, as he says, it connotes a degree of security that does not exist. So here's what, what he's getting at. This is a, a long quote from, from Bigger. A right is a special kind of moral claim. What makes it, it special is its strength, and what makes it especially strong is that it can call upon social support in the form of law and its enforcement by the police and courts. Indeed, it is because it has the backing of social authority that a right gives the right holder the power to assert confidently what he has a right to. However, where a supposed right is natural in the sense of operating in a condition of domestic and international anarchy, a state of nature, as he calls it, by definition, it lacks social support, and with it, the special strength that distinguishes a right from a moral claim upon conscience. So that's bigger. Now, his concept of natural rights is different in two important respects from the Thomistic concept of natural rights that I have proposed. First, he sees rights in general as arriving their force from positive law and the mechanisms of its enforcement. Second, he sees rights as being natural only when they operate in an anarchic state of nature, a state that apparently lacks government for positive law. But on the Thomistic concept of natural rights, they derive their force not from positive law and the mechanisms of, of its enforcement, but proximally from our nature and from natural law and ultimately from God. Furthermore, on the Thomistic concept of natural rights, what makes them natural is not that they would operate in some, in some anarchic state of nature, they are natural because they derive from our nature as human beings. So Bigger's concept of natural rights is radically different from the Thomistic concept. Consequently, his objection to natural rights has no relevance to the natural rights as to, to natural rights as Thomists understand them. To be sure, he could develop a case that specifically targets the Thomistic concept of natural rights. Um, but as far as I know, he has not done that. And if he does so in the future, I would be happy to take it into consideration. Well, I hope that I, what I've said about natural, right, natural rights this evening has been enlightening. Um, if you'd like me to clarify anything 
further, I'd be happy to do that during the Q&A. Thank you very much. for your lecture, Dr. Trabek. Um, yeah, we'll take the next um, 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, if you had any questions, feel free to um, speak up. Or objections. Uh, you mentioned uh, the search of truth and the search of, uh, I believe it was a political community. Mm -hmm. uh, from my point of view, it's that, a, that the search of uh, political community is find the search of truth be searching actively for it. Um, could you expand on that a little more? Uh, so, uh, could you state your question? I'm not quite sure I understood. Uh, what's the difference between finding, uh, looking, having the right to search for your truth mm -hmm. and the right to search for your political community? Because I know that's like kind of like a... Sure. Uh, well, I, well um, so we are social beings um, because we're dependent beings. And so we need others if we're going to survive and flourish, right? First of all, we need our families, but families need to be supported by a larger community, right? And that's the political community. Um, what I'm saying here, you know, you would find um, in, in Aristotle, this is his notion of, of the family and the political community as natural communities that we, that we need. It's also in St. Thomas. So we need that, we need larger, we need communities to survive and flourish, right? Because we depend on other people to, to teach us, to exemplify um, virtue, um, to help us make the right decisions and so on, right? So that's, so those communities are, are one human good, one natural good. Beside that, we are also intelligent beings that, that can know the truth, right? So the truth is another natural good. And how, how is the, the pursuit of truth related to um, the political community? Well, um, in this way, it should be, ideally the political community creates an environment that makes the pursuit of truth possible, right? How does it do that? Um, there are a number of different ways, um, and a lot of it will depend on the context, but um, one way is by uh, making it possible for people to found, found institutions like this, universities, primary schools, secondary schools, right? So the, the uh, political community doesn't intervene directly in our pursuit of truth, but makes it possible, uh, creates the conditions that allow us to pursue the truth. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so earlier in the lecture, you touched on the topic of the self mm -hmm. and how you know we have to have our nature and we view ourselves like, in mm -hmm. our nature. Mm -hmm. So, like, how would you describe it working when you know when one becomes a Christian mm -hmm. and their nature starts to change mm -hmm. from what typical human nature is? Yeah. You know, eventually being completely sanctified yeah. in the Lord. Like, sure. Are we still ourselves? Yeah, well, okay, so our, it's, our, our nature isn't, what changes is a condition, our nature itself doesn't change, but a condition that our nature is in changes, right? So when we are, say, um, when, when we're not uh, following, uh, say, the gospel, um, we're still human beings, but we're human beings who are not living in a way that um, is good for us, right? Mm -hmm. 
when when we we have when we convert when we start living according to the gospel um, again we're still human beings but we're li- now we're living in a way that will be good for us as human beings so I w- I wouldn't want to say that our nature changes what changes is the condition that our nature is in right so just uh, you know think of it on analogy with um, physical health um, it's still the same biological system right when I'm sick but when I'm sick, it's not functioning as it should. Um, when I'm healthy, this same biological system is now functioning as it, as it should, right? So what I'm saying here is that our, our, it's not our nature that it changes, but the, the condition that our nature is in when we, um, when we turn to a, a, a life, living a life according to the gospel. Sure. Yes? So the uh, Declaration of Independence says, uh, Unalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Right. And I um, think life was one that you you brought up. Yeah. The other two, I guess you, you addressed liberty and said that it's really a, it's it's assumed. Yeah. Right. Down. Yeah. I mean, you you could you could say okay, we have a right to freedom, but it's it it's conditional on the fact that we're using our freedom in the right way. Right. But anyways, go ahead. And then, but and then there was the, the pursuit of happiness, and I guess that was a substitute for property. Right. Yeah. And so, is property also similar to liberty? I mean, in order to pursue, in order to um, pursue a good, you have to have property, and it's a, and as a result, it's a, it's a secondary right or dependent upon. Yeah, I, so I think we could say that there are certain primary rights, um, uh, primary natural rights, and then maybe secondary natural rights that are implied. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we could say, um, for instance, uh, yes, as, as you point out, Declaration, Declaration of Independence talks about liberty as, as a right, freedom as a right. Um, well, as I said in the paper, if, if I have a right to, to do something to pursue these goods because I'm obliged to by natural law, then that also entails that I have the freedom to pursue them, right? So we, we, we might say that then, you know, um, freedom is an implied natural right. It may not, we may not think of it as one of these basic natural rights, but it's necessarily implied by them. So we could still speak of it as a kind of natural right, for sure, yeah. So, explain it again, and maybe you already did this, but so yet we have an unalienable right to life. However, mm-hmm. we're a serial killer in some states. We right. have the, the state has the right to take our life. Yeah. yeah. So, how is that in that unalienable state fact that's the right to take our life? Okay, yeah. So, uh, here again, I would want to make the distinction between possessing a right and exercising a right. There can be, so I'm not saying if, if, um, if we have uh, capital punishment, this doesn't necessarily imply that we're taking away this person's right. We're, um, we're saying that, first of all, there are conditions on his exercising his right. And we could also say um, that what we're, the execution itself is not, um, formally speaking, a taking away of the person's right, it's defending uh, the community, or um, it's um, meeting out justice, 
it's it's not um, it's not necessarily taking away that person's right. We could say something similar in cases of private self-defense. So if if I if I kill the the person who is trying to um, kill me, St. Thomas says, for instance, that's permissible so long as what I'm intending is defending myself, right? I'm not intending to kill him, I'm intending to protect myself from being killed. So does he end up being killed? It's quite possible, but it, that's, not, that's outside of my intention, right? Sure. Go ahead. Yes. You. Yes. So, um, kind of along those same lines, like we have the right to pursue the truth. But mm-hmm. so, when you take people who want to mutilate their bodies to become a different gender in yeah. their pursuit of their truth, yeah. where do you draw the line? Right. In that, and do we have the right to deny their right to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this is you know obviously. Um, a very complex question, but I think we need to to consider it um, in the way that I was um, talking about in the paper. That uh, in, in this sense, that we don't have a self that's independent from our nature, right? So there there is nothing that is good for myself as a human, um, good for myself that isn't also good for me as a human being, and the same is true of what's bad for me, right? So everything that, that's good for me is good um, for me as a human being, is, is, uh, are these natural goods. So if it, it seems to me that uh, it belongs to our nature to be either men or women, right? Human beings are either men or women. And we can even make that case biologically, right? Um, so uh, if this is something given by nature, I can't, on the, um, uh, I can't say, well, I have a self that's independent of my nature that wants to be this. I don't have a self that's independent of my nature, right? So in, in going against my nature, I'm going against myself, right? So in, um, in mutilating myself as a man, I'm, not doing this in favor of some self that, in, um, that is independent of my nature, I'm mutilating my nature, right? I'm, attack, I'm attacking something that's good. So I think one of the problems with, um, with uh, contemporary gender theory is that there's this idea that we can separate ourselves from our nature. And that just doesn't make sense, we can't. What, what would I, if I weren't a human being, what, what would I be? There, there's nothing I would be in, in, independent. So take away everything about me that's human. What's left? Where's the self? It's nowhere, right? So the, a self that exists independently of our nature is, is a fiction. Um, there's a lot more that would have to be said there, but I think the, the way to come at it is to, first of all, understand that... Um, that this, is, that this idea that there's a self that we have that, that isn't um, through and through an expression of our nature is, is, is false. Sure. Yes. Would you say that in the same way how we are able to exercise our rights or not exercise them, 
we do not say have a right to go to exercise the opposite of what our national rights are. Yeah, we we don't have a right to do what's bad for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's no um, our rights derive from natural law, which directs us to what's good for us. Um, you take away that, and there we don't have these rights. Um, so yeah, it, it necessarily depends on our pursuing um, what's good for us. We don't have a right a right that's independent of that. Yes. So you mentioned earlier how one of our rights is to form stable and functioning communities. Yeah. Of course. So given that, to what extent or what obligations does the wider society and maybe even the, I guess the state have to ensure that such communities can flourish and succeed? Well, the state has as a a a major. Um, I think that's that's central um, for the state, right? Because it's the state itself. Um, is is there um, to create the conditions for us to survive and flourish, right? What do we need, first of all, for that? We need families. We need stable, functioning families, right? So it's the, the state should concern itself um, with creating conditions um, by way of policy, by way of law, etc., that... Um, allow families, um, good families to exist, right? Um, so the, 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 the state should protect families, right? It's, it's, um, it's, an, it's a duty of the state to do that, for sure. Now, how is the state gonna, exec in what precise ways will the state do that? Well, it depends on, on the context, right? Um, what would work and what wouldn't work in, in the context and what the resources are. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Um, as I understand it, natural law is derived from the will of God. Mm -hmm. And natural rights are derived from natural law. Yeah. In, in pursuit of natural law. Right. And there's a difference between the possession of these natural rights and their exercise. Yes. And it's that distinction that gives rise to the possibility of limits yeah, on these natural Exactly, rights. exactly, yeah. That being the case, what's the limit on the limit? There is none. So is there really a limit on natural rights or is it just a faulty understanding of what natural rights are? For example, well, yeah, go ahead. if you say, um, I have a natural right to speak my mind, mm -hmm. but I can't be all fired up proud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't. Th I don't think you have a natural right to speak your mind. But anyway, well, go ahead. <laughs> right. Well, especially if you knew what was in my mind. <laughs> um, but whatever the case may be, um, I have a whatever. Um, when I'm, my 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 question is, I don't see where that um, argument can put any kind of a limit on the restraint of natural rights, and isn't that tantamount to just the yeah, well, it, it could be. I, well, first of all, I, I think, you know, you explained it, it perfectly, the relationship between, um, so the, the origin of, of natural rights um, and natural law and the origin of natural law and, and the will of God. So I think you're, you're, you're dead on about that. And um, 
Um, as a matter of fact, I think you could have given this this talk. Uh, <laughs> and and the distinction between possessing possessing a right and, and exercising a right. Uh, I totally agree with all of that. Um, I would say the, the limit would, would always be, so what are these rights for? We have to consider what the, what the telos, what the goal is. Uh, the, the rights are for the pursuit of natural goods. So what, what's the criterion for determining what the limits are? Well, it's, is, is my claim to be exercising my natural right harmful to a natural good, either uh, for me or for another person. That wouldn't be a natural right. But but it, it would Rather be. Rather than a limited natural right. So again, again, we're not, the claim isn't that, that right, that having a right means that there are no conditions, right? Having a right just means that um, you have the license to, to do something, to claim something, or to possess something. There's nothing it's in there. Right. Well, no, that, that's, that's, a right, that's a right in general. That is a right in general. So whether it's a positive right or a natural right, that's, it, that's what, um, what a, a right is. There's nothing in there that says that, there are, that for something to be a right, there are no conditions on it. Right? That, that doesn't belong to the definition of a right. So if you say that there are limits on rights, um, there, there, there could be, and they, they still be rights. Well, what would, what would limit them? Remember, there's a, there's a hierarchy of, of natural goods and therefore a hierarchy of rights. So the right to a higher good might um, limit the, someone else's right to a lower good. Um, it's hard to speak of, of, of these things you know, in, in the abstract. We have to consider particular yeah. cases. But no, I mean, you're, you know, the, the problem that you're raising is, is an important one. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we need to, to think about. Um, so I tried to address it a little bit in, in the paper, but you know, I, I didn't have it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.